time is now six o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Monday, December 19th. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. And I'm your host, Christian Knudsen. In tonight's news, Monona plans to join Madison Metro's bus service. After nearly two years of negotiations, a new true stage worker contract is ratified. The Cap Times investigates how a state law is holding up solar power departments. And in the second half, Cardinal Call recaps a busy fall semester at UW, and Wildlife Weekly celebrates indigenous cultural practices. This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORC studios on Bedford Street in beautiful downtown Madison. After six months, 35,000 employees at the University of Wisconsin are finally getting their promised pay raises. The state legislature had previously approved those raises in the state's 2023-2025 to budget. But the raises have been blocked for months by Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss. They've been used by Voss to push the UW system to cut back on diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. Now that the impasse is over and the UW Board of Regents approved a deal curtailing diversity initiatives for other priorities, the legislature's Joint Committee on Employment Relations today signed off on the raises. UW employees are set to receive a 4% raise retroactive to the start of July. For 2024, they'll receive a further 2% increase. Boss said lawmakers need to review DEI initiatives across Wisconsin, which he says enhance division rather than diversity. Speaking after today's vote, Voss told reporters to, quote, stay tuned, unquote. Democratic Governor Tony Evers is calling on Republican lawmakers to release money that's already been earmarked to clean up PFAS communication contamination across the state. About $125 million in the biennial state budget have been set aside to address contamination of these so-called forever chemicals. But specifics on how to use the money haven't been sorted out. A bill to govern the spending hasn't been approved by the legislature. Democrats say the bill shields businesses from liability to remediate PFAS. The bill would otherwise grant money to municipalities for PFAS treatment systems and to landowners for their own remediation. But because the bill hasn't been passed, the money hasn't been yet released. Instead, it's been sitting in a a trust fund controlled by the legislature's powerful budget writing committee, reports Wisconsin Examiner. The Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources announced today it would suspend the rulemaking process to set aside safe standards for PFAS and groundwater, saying the agency needs legislative approval first. The former chair of the Republican Party of Wisconsin says he was tricked into going along with the scheme to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Andrew Hitt, who was one of the 10 fake electors, told WISN-TV in an interview this weekend that the group didn't know they were playing into a plan to attempt to overturn the election results in Wisconsin. Hitt was among a group to sign fraudulent documents in 2020, claiming that former President Donald Trump had won Wisconsin. He and nine others were the subject of a civil lawsuit settled earlier this month, which resulted in the official admission that President Joe Biden won in 2020. President Biden is slated to visit Milwaukee tomorrow as we're less than 11 months away from the 2024 presidential election. He's slated to promote the economy, or what his administration touts as Bidenomics while visiting the Wisconsin Black Chamber of Commerce. It'll mark Biden's third trip to Wisconsin this year, illuminating our high-profile status as a presidential battleground state. And following up on our story yesterday, a Dane County committee signed off last night on a proposed agreement between the Dane County Regional Airport and the Wisconsin Air National Guard. 
The agreement allows the National Guard <clears throat> to use the airport and Truax airfield. In exchange, the Guard is responsible for firefighting and other responses to any crashes that happen at the airport. Without the agreement, Dane County would be on the hook to set up its own firefighting and emergency response department, which would cost millions of dollars. But some environmental groups and county supervisors have objected to signing off on the joint use agreement, pointing out that a new clause in the agreement could release the National Guard from legal liability over PFAS contamination. The agreement moved forward last night with a recommendation to approve from the Dane County Personnel and Finance Committee. Three Dane County supervisors voted in support, while one voted against, and one was excused. Two other county bodies, the Public Works and Transportation Committee, along with the Airport Commission, have also recommended the agreement for approval. One other county body, the Environment, Agriculture, and Natural Resources Committee, has recommended to deny it. The agreement next heads to the Dane County Board and is listed in the meeting agenda for this Thursday. Spring local elections are just a few months away. In April, the McFarland School District will ask ask taxpayers for more money to fund school operations, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The McFarland School Board signed off on the move at at its meeting yesterday. If approved by voters in April, the district would receive an extra $3.7 million for the next school year, with millions more each year until 2028. The money would go to pay teachers, offering them more competitive pay rates and to allow class sizes to stay the same. A recent report from the Wisconsin Counties Association found that school districts around the state are increasingly relying on local referendums to cover the cost of teaching kids. Referendums allow residents living in a school district to raise their taxes to exceed state limits. In 2022, there were 166 school referendums on the ballot and eight school referendums just in Dane County. And those were tonight's headlines, and now to the rest of today's top stories. The Monona City Council approved a resolution to start contract negotiations with Madison Metro. By joining Madison's bus system, Monona leaders hope to expand public transportation access and promote affordable housing in their community. WRT News producer Faye Parks has the story. Jade Isiri Ramos is a producer at WORT. She's also a Monona resident, and as Madison Bus Service is set to expand to her city, she could be steps away from the future Route C. I would be going from having no bus within like maybe a half mile walk to having a bus right next to my house. And it's going to come down through basically what I would call the heart of Monona. So, you know, past the pool, past the library. That's after the Monona City Council approved a move last night to negotiate a contract with Madison Metro and bring bus service to Monona. Four out of the city's six alders voted to approve. Madison buses don't currently serve the city of Monona. Instead, Monona contracts with a commuter service for the Monona Express, which makes four loops each morning and four loops each afternoon to take riders to Madison. A related service, the Monona Lift, acts as a paratransit service for residents who can't take the express. Monona Mayor Mary O'Connor says the city would need to give their current contractor about six months of notice before any change. She adds that this process is long in the works, the subject of community meetings and other engagement with Monona residents. Madison Metro had approached the city, I think in October of 21, to see if we'd be interested in them providing a route through Monona as part of their redeveloping their routes in the whole Madison area. Alder Nancy Moore is chair of Monona's Transit Commission. 
which previously recommended the move after years of reviewing public transportation options. If we didn't go with Metro, we would be the only city in the entire region that wouldn't have Metro. So it would really leave Monona quite isolated. With the change, two routes that currently drive through Monona without stopping will open up for the city's residents. And the plan adds a third route that will travel straight down the town's thoroughfare past Monona Grove High School. According to Monona Alder Patrick DePula, joining Madison Metro is a natural fit for the city's residents. Our current bus service is very tailored to professionals that go downtown and work traditional hours like 9 to 5 or 9 to 4 or what have you. Switching to Madison Metro really enables us to accommodate people that may work second shift or may have more than one job or may work on the west side of Madison. But the switch has its critics, and not all residents are in favor. According to a survey Monona sent out earlier this year, 44% of respondents said they'd be opposed. Residents wrote in with a number of concerns about noise, traffic, and safety. They also pointed out that the city of Monona has few sidewalks, and that could be a serious danger moving forward. According to Alder Moore, the planned routes mostly stick to major thoroughfares that already have sidewalks. And the streets that don't are key priorities in a bike ped plan the city passed several years ago. She also says they're already getting quotes from their public works division to assess the cost of that project. But the new sidewalks likely won't be constructed before the city joins Madison Metro's bus system. A contract between the city of Monona and Madison Metro Transit is set to be negotiated in the next few months. The new routes are slated to run by the end of next year. The growth for Metro Transit comes as the bus system's new routes have been in effect for about six months and as the first line of bus rapid transit is set to launch by the end of next year. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. TrueStage employees have ratified a new contract with the help of their union local, putting an end to over a year and a half of contentious negotiations. WORT reporter LSF has more. Under the new contract, union members at TrueStage will get 15.5% raises. Those raises are retroactive to spring 2022, as the old contract expired and negotiations over a new contract began. Since then, TrueStage employees had been without a contract until the union ratified the new contract last week. Mike Farwell is the chief steward of the Office and Professional Employees International Union, or OPEIU, Local 39. He says the year and a half of contract negotiations is far from the usual time it takes to yield results. Most of the time, it's a couple months. and generally speaking, it gets done before our previous contract expires at all. The OPEIU local announced last Friday that the roughly 450 employees working for the Madison branch of True Stage had ratified the contract. Not all True Stage workers will be covered by the new contract. Farwell says his union represents most of the non-management employees at the company. It's not voluntary. It's uh, dependent entirely on the role that they're in and whether that role itself is represented or not. The general rule of thumb is that we represent most of the non-management employees. The new contract guarantees a 13.25% wage increase over the next four years. It also secures current pensions and health insurance plans and provides job security to remote workers while bringing more workers under union protection. It comes after ups and downs in the negotiation process, including the filing of unfair labor practices, the firing of the previous chief steward, and a two-week strike in May outside the True Stage offices. During that strike, workers called for many of the demands outlined in the agreement, 
including better wages, protection of their health and pension benefits, and maintaining remote work positions. During the negotiation process, the employee bonus program was suspended to provide funding for demands higher on the union's list of priorities. Farwell says this decision was met with disbelief from some union members, but was part of the price they had to pay. In order to make sure that things like a retro pay uh, was paid in full, the uh, pension was kept up through almost the end of the contract for all employees, including new employees. Um, and it also provided a little bit of an increase on uh, our raises as well. So overall, it was worth it in the end, even if it was something that we didn't like having to accept. Farwell says by the end of the journey, the contract was something union members could live with. They can understand why we made the choices that we made. There were some that were still very much opposed to it, but the overwhelming majority uh, ended up voting it in, and it passed by a very, very wide margin. The new contract will expire in 2028. Reporting for WORT News, I'm LSF. It's now 6.19 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The installation of solar panels in multifamily dwellings is cost prohibitive, thanks to the current state law. As a result, lower-income Wisconsinites have less access to renewable energy, but that may change in the coming months. Jana Rose Schleiss is an enterprise and investigative reporter with the Capital Times and a former WRT host. She recently reported on this issue and explained what's happening to WRT news producer Faye Parks. Thank you for joining me, Jana. Yeah, thanks for having me. So to start, can you walk us through current law when it comes to installing solar panels on multifamily dwellings? There isn't a lot of it in Wisconsin. How rooftop solar arrays generally work is a single-family home will invest in the solar panels, install them, and then connect to the grid through their utility. There's a system called net metering, and and this is one of the many policy specifics that I might be getting into, but your solar panels produce probably the most during midday on a sunny day, and at that time, you're producing more than you need. So you sell the excess back to your utility. You sell it back to the grid for other use. But then, say on a cloudy day, you're not producing your energy needs, so you need to buy a little bit. This system of this two-way energy flow is called net metering. Because we all have electric meters on our homes, if you own your home, and that meter is keeping track of all of that. Why we don't really see rooftop solar arrays on multifamily dwellings is because policy in Wisconsin requires a meter for each unit. And on a single family home, that's going to be one meter. Compare that to an apartment building. Apartments that I profiled have 50 units in it. That would be 50 meters, which is cost prohibitive for developers. So the original policy, and I found this justification in Public Service Commission documents of why there needs to be a single meter to each and every unit is to promote energy conservation, ensure that each customer is billed for their own energy use only, and ensure that the utility is able to disconnect the electric service to an individual unit without affecting the service of the other units at the property. So that's directly from the Public Service Commission documents. There has been an increase in waivers to this rule, and so the Public Service Commission has started a process where they are reconsidering this rule to see if there's a better way to apply it. So they're in that process now. It is expected to take a few months where a public comment period would happen. People can weigh in and then commissioners could make changes to the policy, but those would then have to be approved by the state legislature and the governor. What are the consequences of the current limitations? 
Well, according to the developers that I profiled, it's harder for them to develop energy-efficient, affordable housing. They have developed a few projects in northwestern Wisconsin that are brand new, affordable housing, income-qualified projects, and they're entirely energy-efficient. They're weatherized, they use electric heat pumps, and then they also have solar arrays that provide the electricity for the units on their buildings. They want to make more of these, but current policy is sort of holding them back. All over Wisconsin and and pretty much nationwide, there's a dearth of affordable housing. People need it. And similarly, the one-two punch on that is low and moderate income folks have a higher energy burden in Wisconsin, which an energy burden is the proportion of your income spent on your energy costs. So if you have a lower income, your electric bill is going to eat up more of your income than if you have a higher income. Similarly, low and moderate income people have least access to the tools that lower your energy bill. They probably don't have the spare cash to invest in weatherization technologies, windows, heat pumps, and certainly not solar panels. You usually need to own your home for that. The same people that are facing higher energy burden in Wisconsin, low and moderate income people, generally have least access to the tools that could lower that energy burden. So these projects that are being developed, a few of them in in River Falls and one in New Richmond, They really sort of offer a potential solution to some of that. These developers want to create energy efficient, brand new affordable housing, which saves them a lot of money when they're they're generating their own electricity. The developer I spoke to, Paul Gerard, said just in the last two winters that this River Falls project has been up, which were harsh winters. He estimates that they saved 30 to 40 percent of their utility costs. Residents in River Falls do not see an electricity bill. And depending on the size of their unit, that could save them 90 to 140 dollars a month. You mentioned the projects in River Falls, and you described it in the article as sort of a silver bullet. How exactly did they implement solar energy there? Yeah, the way they got around this single meter rule is because it's a municipal utility. So River Falls has their own municipal utility that serves residents within the city. They operate slightly differently than the large investor-owned utilities that we're maybe more familiar with in that they can be a little bit more flexible. And so I spoke to someone from the city there, Mike Noreen, and he said, you know, the project was proposed. We looked at the rule as it was designed, and we just sort of made a cost-benefit analysis, and the city needs affordable housing. It's, you know, maybe about 30 minutes away from the Twin Cities, so the population is growing, and like a lot of places, they don't have enough housing. And so they sort of decided that they trusted these developers. The developers had a great reputation. They needed more affordable housing for low and moderate residents. And this project was worth it to them to waive the single meter rule. So they did. So the idea is that more than anything, this is saving the developer money because they would never be charging the residents for electricity anyway? For sure. Um, Paul Gerard is the developer, and he said to me, you know, it's Mother Nature's free, unmetered sunshine that is allowing us to keep the rent low. So it saves the developer and owner of the building money. They're passing those savings on to residents is the simplest way to explain it. So you mentioned this is something that the Public Service Commission will be assessing in the coming months. Do you have a more specific timeline on that? Do you know when they'll be considering it and what the next steps are? 
I will say I didn't get a more specific timeline than that, but there has been an increase in waiver requests. More developers are wanting to use these type of energy efficient technologies like heat pumps and solar panels on multifamily homes. Since 2017, there have been 11 waiver requests, and I believe there are four currently pending. Uh, Those are the numbers I got from the Public Service Commission. So it was just a few months ago that the regulators started this process of a staff analysis. It should take a couple of months where a public comment period would follow and then regulators would vote on it. Westcap and Gerard Corporations, the developers I profile in the story, they wanted to make an energy-efficient affordable housing complex in Eau Claire, designed the same way as the River Falls one did with heat pumps and solar panels. They applied for a waiver for the single meter rule from the Public Service Commission, and it was denied. However, when commissioners were voting on this, they really expressed that they wished to approve it. Chairman Bach said, I would love to waive my magic wand and grant the permanent waiver, but I can't do that based on the way the code is written as I sit here today. And she said it was frustrating, but it underscored the need for legislative change. So commissioners, when taking up that case, really lauded the project's energy efficiency measures and and said they'd hope to see more developments like that in Wisconsin. We can't say what the changes will be, but certainly these types of projects are being considered, uh, I'm sure, in the staff analysis about what potential changes could be coming for this rule. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Developers have told me that while this is a really important and potential to increase energy efficient buildings in Wisconsin, as well as renewable energy, it's also potentially a way to spur more development of affordable housing, which people need across the state. You know, affordable housing in the past has not always had a great reputation, as one of my sources pointed out to me, and has sort of been seen as a blight in things that people don't want in their communities. And this is a way to make new, energy-efficient, affordable housing available to more people, potentially, because the way these developers are doing it, they're relying on these energy-efficient and renewable energy technologies to lower their costs, and then they're passing those costs on to residents. So it's a way to increase renewable energy during a climate crisis, but it's also potentially a way to increase affordable housing options in Wisconsin. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Jana. Thank you so much, Faye. That was Jana Rose Schleiss, an enterprise and investigative reporter with the Capital Times. She recently published a report on the state of solar energy in Wisconsin. In particular, current state law makes it difficult for multifamily homes to implement renewable energy technology. She says the state's Public Service Commission may consider a policy change, as energy utility companies have seen an uptick in waiver requests from multifamily developers. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful, here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. On this week's Cardinal Call, feature contributor Gavin Escott shares the second part of his semester in review. He spoke with the Daily Cardinal's editor-in-chief, Drake white Berge and managing editor Tyler Katzenberger to get their perspectives about UW-Madison campus happenings these past few months. Hello, and welcome to The Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm your co-host, Gavin Escott. 
And I'm your co-host, Hewan Lim. Today, we're joined by our editor-in-chief, Drake Whiteberge, and managing editor, Tyler Katzenberger, to recap the fall semester. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having us, Kevin. The Cardinal has covered a ton of sensitive topics this semester that have provoked strong reactions, not just from the campus community, but across the state. What stands out to me is UW System President Jay Rothman putting the Cardinal on public blast for our reporting on his internal communications. What has it been like navigating the backlash, and how does it affect how the Cardinal covers topics? Well, it's certainly been an exciting journey, to say the least. I don't think the Cardinal has received any attention like it has this last semester in quite a while. So especially you know, for all of us, it was it was very, I won't say fun, but it was you know a, a new situation to navigate. I don't know if there's any precedent for the UW system president calling out a student newspaper publicly on Twitter before. And so our first reaction was, you know, what, what, what do we do? I don't, I'm not sure. But you know, we looked at our reporting in this situation and, you know, any other situation where people are giving us a high level of attention. We look at our reporting and we see what it is and we're like, okay, this was a good story. You know, we stand by it. You know, in Jay Rothman's situation, neither him nor his comms person, Mark Pitch, reached out to us about anything. They didn't reach out with comment. They didn't reach out with correction. They didn't reach out with clarification. And to us, that means the story stands. It stands on its own. It's correct. The information presented in it was factual, and it was mostly just Jay Rothman upset that we were talking about his communications. If there was something wrong with our story, they would have reached out to us with a correction or a clarification or something along those lines, but they didn't. So we think it was a great story. It was very good, well-reported, original, and it had big implications across the state, both at UW-Madison and at all of the UW system schools. So for us to be doing that kind of reporting and to get the statewide and in some cases even national attention for what we're doing, we think that's great. Drake put it perfectly. We stand by our coverage. It was good reporting and we're not going to apologize for it. I think folks see student journalism sometimes as maybe a easier target, maybe as um, somebody they think they can be a little more openly hostile towards. and Or just plan out ignore. I mean, sometimes, yeah. And the thing is, is like, okay, we're students. We don't do this full time, right? But we still have professional experience. And I, you know, I want to talk about Yale really quickly. We know some folks over at Yale who have had a really hard time dealing with blowback from some of their coverage this semester. I mean, video boards doxing student journalists on campus. That is wild. And I mean, this has a real visceral impact on people covering it. Like Drake and I are tough. We we can take it. It's certainly not fun, though, especially when we're trying to focus on our assignments to, I think, have people calling us out on Twitter for solid, impactful reporting. And I I do sometimes fear reactions like those that happen at Yale, even though that's on the extreme end. You have to you have to think about it. Um, and I know for students over there, it's been really, really taxing. And yeah, I think like my message coming out of that is, is student journalists are not your target just because they are students. It doesn't mean that you can pressure them into covering you a certain way or attack their coverage with more license. It's credible. We are not we are learning, but we do have some semblance of what we're doing. And yeah, we will stick by our reporting because it is solid. It was affirming to see that after the Rothman piece, we got an outpouring of support in support of student journalists from across the board. We had people saying they supported our reporting and Rothman should have answered us. We had people saying that we did the right thing. I think people understood where we were coming from. But it's not just administrators that we have to appeal to, but also members of the campus community who were pretty divided over the Israel-Hamas war. How did the paper cover that and navigate some really tough divisions? 
Well, the Daily Cardinal, you no, know, it's a very long-standing entrenched within the campus community. And so in a way, the Daily Cardinal kind of reflects almost every aspect of our community. When this war broke out, um, when Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th, immediately it was divisive to say the least. The Daily Cardinal has a large number of Jewish uh, staff members. We have several Arab and Palestinian staff members. We had people on staff whose family were being impacted on both sides of the conflict. We had people who traveled abroad to go and make sure their family were okay after this. Again, on both sides of the conflict. So for the Daily Cardinal to stand up and you know, take a side or whatever for a conflict on the other side of the world, um, we would be alienating half our staff either way. Um, so we decided what would be best would be a human-centered approach for our coverage. Looking at this not from, oh, you're Israeli or Jewish, or oh, you're Muslim or Arab or Palestinian, but looking at, okay, you're human. You're human. You're being affected by this. How are you dealing with this? And that goes for both sides of the conflict. Us students here in Madison, Wisconsin, have more similarities than we do differences living over here. And it was one of our efforts to highlight those similarities that even for our community members who do have family on opposite sides of this conflict, you know, we're thousands of miles away. You know, we can lean on each other for support in this situation. We're all here together. We're all one big community. So, you know, highlighting these human experiences, these human impacts, how this event is covering our campus. You know, that was our, our big our big highlight, our big focus. The Action Project this semester, the DIY issue, examined the various forms of community in Wisconsin and the Madison area. How did you settle on that topic? And what were some stories that stood out to you? So I might go off on a little bit of a tangent here, but DIY is very... Please, uh, we love tangents. <laughs> DIY is very important to me. I listen to a lot of punk rock music. For those who, who are aware and for those who aren't, DIY is a very big part of you know the punk rock ethos. Doing things yourself, uh, setting up your own venues, your own record labels, your own... You know, building your own community to create and listen to you know, punk rock music is a very big thing. It's a very big part of the punk rock experience. Um, so when we were thinking about you know action projects, what is an issue within our community that we can highlight? Uh, these community-built spaces um, without a lot of resources where people built these things to do what they love. Um, they built these organizations to make an impact on their community without very many resources. Um, you know, they, they did something, they liked something, they wanted to do something. So they just did it. They didn't wait around for a university grant or for some corporation to sponsor them or something like that. They just went out and did it because they loved to do it and they wanted to do it. And we think that was a very almost noble thing to highlight um, to show that you don't need some all these resources. You don't need some sort of backing to go and do something. You know, you can just do it if you want to. You can do it yourself, you know. First, let me say it's a very visually pretty issue. And to clear that up a little bit, I just really love our cover. Um, Zoe Kikla's graphics, along with Henry Moore, and Zoe took the lead on that cover, and it turned out stunning. Um, <laughs> it really gets at the heart of what DIY is, and I want to highlight a few stories from the issue. The first being a story about Zoe Bayless Co-op. It's an issue we've been following for a while. So Zoe Bayless um, was told by the university last year that they were going to have to relocate. Um, they've been in a building where Levy Hall is going to go, um, kind of like right by uh, Celery Hall and the business school. They've been there for over 50 years, and they're the last remaining student co-op um, on campus. And the university kind of just told and them- And in they, the state of Wisconsin. And in the state of Wisconsin, okay. Yeah, and the university kind of just told them they have to go. And when Zoe Bayless is like, okay, where? Um, the answers weren't really, for Zoe Bayless at least, they weren't ideal. 
like a floor of a residence hall. That's a lot different from a communal living space where you make your own meals um, and you basically operate autonomously. And so uh, they managed to find another building. Um, They held fundraising events. They reached out to folks in the community to try to raise awareness and raise support for their cause. And they were able to buy a new building. Um, It's this really pretty building. I think it's right across from the KK. It might be a block up, but um, it's over on Langdon. And they have this beautiful mural now. And so we sent um, reporter Mary Bosch to go cover that. And she did a really excellent job um, talking to these folks about what that process was like and how they found community and doing this themselves literally like doing the renovations of this house themselves, moving themselves when nobody else was willing to help them. And it's to me, it really captures the essence of what this issue is supposed to be about um, in terms of focus. And there were a few other stories. um, I think of like science for science's sake. Um, So our science section did three stories under that title. I'm looking at three people who just did science because it's fun or because they wanted to um, create space an inclusive space in fields where maybe that didn't exist before. And then we also had a three story feature package on punk music, as Drake already (laughs) talked about. And I mean, just like the the venues, I mean, a venue called Booze House, um, if I can even say that on the radio, it was just like fun to listen to them or well read about them, talking about how they built this venue and created community. Shout out to Arthur Machado, who was one of our profile pieces for that. He's done a lot of things for the Madison DIY community. And so getting to talk with him was great. And then we also talked with a local band. Like there are just a bunch of cool stories you're not going to read anywhere else that are in this edition. And so if you haven't checked it out, you really should. And I will say, there is a story in there on WRT Radio. Um, <laughs> believe it or not, WRT is a DIY project, a community radio station of community members coming together to run a radio station out of you know, a sense of duty or love or you know, what have you. So I think it's important to highlight that as well. A bit of a, um, a bit of meta analysis on the airwaves. It's a little meta, a little too meta for my taste, maybe. But yeah, I, just, I, th- I thought that was also you know, important to highlight that for the listeners listening to this. Now, please talk more about Wart. <laughs> talk more about Wart. I mean, Wart, if you're listening right now, you're listening to a DIY. You're, the Daily Cardinal is DIY. It's a bunch of students who've come together, you know, to do this thing. Um, we don't have any resources beyond the resources we come up with ourselves. Supporters so, that are really passionate about the stories they're pursuing. We have a passion. We have a love. We have a determination. We have a sense of duty. We don't receive any sponsorships. So... We run on Sushi Express and Mocha Water. Um, We're not exactly the classiest bunch, but we come together and we get our stuff done. And I I think this issue is emblematic of that. And it was deeply personal for us. And Drake took the lead on this topic. And I really think he chose an amazing topic. It's it's specific. It's focused in a way that we don't usually do with action projects. But I think it should be our precedent going forward. It's it's great. So after a news-filled first semester, do you have any plans for the second semester? Any coverage topics you're hoping the Cardinal will prioritize? Oh, Gavin, I always have plans. <laughs> um, this in- guy is always <laughs> cooking up new stories. In, in terms of plans, yes, yes, we are looking toward next semester. We're going to need a long break. Um, I'm going to spend an entire day in bed um, as soon as we're done with the semester and done with finals and done with coverage. Um, I'm going to ban some of our reporters from doing things because they also need to spend weeks in bed or in some cases for some of them in Europe. Um, But looking toward next semester, one, we're going to keep following the UW system. Um, This saga is not over yet. In fact, um, this past weekend, it took quite the surprising turn. Um, So we'll be there. Um, UW still has, I I think, lots of questions around diversity and inclusion beyond budgetary concerns. Um, You know, we obviously we had um, multi-day protests in the spring over a racist video and we've still had 
um, more high profile incidences of hate and bias and that's not going away and so we're going to keep covering that um housing is still in the picture um you know we've had we, we've seen reports of luxury apartments um offering what seem to be incentives for people to rent in their buildings um at a time when we're supposed to have very minimal vacancy that's an interesting question um there are plenty of things that we're going to be looking into in in terms of that um, yeah, Drake, is there anything else you want to add in terms of coverage we're looking at for next semester? Um, so yeah, next semester, we're just going to see a lot of fallout from the coverage we've already done this semester. This UW system budget debacle is, I think, going to continue for I don't know how long. I think we'll see coverage you know, of a lot, a lot of these things. Um, we're going to see people's reactions to this. We're going to see the actual tangible impact of it on the university. We're going to see, I believe, Tony Evers has a lawsuit pending about the pay raises so we'll see the resolution of that at some point you know all of all these loose ends will hopefully tie together within the next four months five months however long a semester is i just want to give a shout out to drake and tyler for an amazing semester you guys have always been there for us and i couldn't imagine anyone else guiding us through some really difficult times this semester so i just want to say thank you and i know the paper is very thankful as well Thank you, Gavin. But I would also like to give a shout out. Um, none of this would be possible without any of our reporters or editors or you know the rest of our staff. Um, yeah, Tyler and I are here through these processes, but the reporting and the editing and the final end product is coming from people like you, Gavin. You know, people, our reporters, our editors, or people who are out here actually doing all of this legwork. So, I think, I think if 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 anything, I think the the staff of the Daily Cardinal deserve just as much, if not more, congratulations than, and thanks than Tyler and I. It's now 6.48 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. On tonight's edition of Wildlife Weekly, Jackie Sandberg explores how rehabilitators can help preserve indigenous cultural practices. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I want to talk about bird feathers. And not in the sense of bird feathers from the rehabilitation perspective when we're talking about maybe imping feathers, which would be, you know, replacing feathers on one bird from another bird, or feathers meaning their condition that's in care, because obviously feathers are very important to birds for flight and for thermoregulation and so many other things. We're going to actually talk about feathers from a totally different perspective today, which is the traditional cultural and aesthetic view of feathers from the human perspective. And I thought this would be a really cool segment that I haven't really done before because believe it or not, in wildlife rehabilitation, we do have to think about where our animals go afterwards if for some reason they're not able to make it through the rehabilitation process. Now that might sound a little bit gruesome, but when I say that, I say that with all of the best and most positive kind of intentions, meaning that our animals are in dire condition when they come to us in rehabilitation. It's a really, really tough field to be in, knowing that not all of the animals that you're going to find or care for are going to be able to be saved. 
We absolutely do our best with every patient that comes in, but if we have a bird that maybe passes away in care after we have tried to rehabilitate, or maybe our veterinarians have helped us to decide whether or not the animal has too many grievous injuries where we might have to provide, you know, a humane euthanasia for that animal. There's a really sad part of our jobs in that way, but also is an incredible service that we're offering to animals in the community when they go through that type of situation. Now, if something like an eagle, for example, comes in, a bald eagle, they are a federally protected bird, just like all of our other native birds. However, there are special regulations for that species. Also would include the golden eagle. However, we've never received one at our wildlife center. And they're more of the West Coast types of eagles. So we'll see the bald eagle more often at our center. But for example, because the Migratory Bird Treaty Act protects all native birds, and we have the Bald Eagle and Golden Eagle Protection Act separately, it really puts extra protections on those species. Now, if a bald eagle comes into our clinic, we have to not only assess the eagle to its fullest with our team, our veterinarians, we also have to involve the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to make that decision about whether or not an eagle might require humane euthanasia. So our veterinarians will do everything that they can to figure out whether or not this is a candidate for rehabilitation. But in the worst case scenario, you know, just imagining that, yes, these decisions do have to happen sometimes. We don't have an eagle that makes it through care or is not able to stay in rehabilitation. What do you do with that eagle? Well, did you know that we actually have some really important services as part of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and others around the U.S. to collect feathers for use of not only carcasses for, you know, museum studies, but also for traditional feather use with our Native American tribes? And so the National Eagle Repository allows for Native American tribes and individuals to be able to request to have a bald eagle feather or golden eagle feather legally, which was established back in the 1970s as part of U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And honestly, this is kind of a tough thing to talk about because, you know, when you think of having to request to get a feather that's important for your own culture and your own traditions, that is a lot of hoops to jump through. And although, you know, as rehabilitators, we very much greatly appreciate the Migratory Bird Treaty Act and these other acts to help preserve animals and species for conservation, it's also got to be very tough when that is part of your history as a culture to have to then go through extra hoops to get those types of feathers. So not only is there the U.S. Fish and Wildlife National Eagle Repository, but there's also Liberty Wildlife Non-Eagle Feather Repository. And that is a totally separate organization that was established in 2010 because bald eagle and golden eagle feathers are not the only feathers that play cultural importance, depending on what tribe we're talking about. Feathers in general from a lot of birds are very important. And there are so many different tribes and there's a lot to look up, but I would highly recommend a really great article that delves deep into this from the Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. And the article talks about the history of the different acts and when it was known to be illegal to sell feathers, barter feathers, trade feathers, etc. as part of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act and the Bald Eagle Protection Act of 1940. But it also goes through the history of when in like the news this became, uh, you know, a really big deal or where it kind of came to the forefront of people's minds. And really, it came from a 1974 event where there were arrests made of a number of Native American folks who had been found selling feathers. 
And everyone except for one of the folks that were prosecuted were fined and found guilty. And that's got to be really shocking. I mean, it was a, a time period that I didn't know much about until reading about it. But obviously, if feathers are that important culturally, there needed to be some way to be able to provide that in a way that then matched with the legal perspectives of the U.S. government and being able to follow the laws that help us for conservation of those species. So that's where the National Eagle Repository and the Non-Eagle Repository in Liberty have played such a big part in being able to process the feathers legally, get a way for them to be distributed, and so that people can use those for cultural importance, for art, for ceremonies, for everything else that they're used in. And there are lots of different ways that feathers are used, not only for, like I mentioned, art, if they have a certain semblance. So, for example, if I'm talking about the Kiowa people, that's in the Plains area, mostly in Oklahoma. The eagle feather is considered a sacred object indicating honor and family and prayers, especially when looking at the women's perspective of honoring Native Americans in the service, the military service. And that comes from a dissertation in 2013 from the University of New Mexico talking about indigenous perspectives of contemporary art, aesthetics, and representation. But we also have other reasons for feather use. So the Kiwa people, again, using as an example in Oklahoma, perform a version of the ghost dance, which is also known as the feather dance because each dancer wears an eagle feather upright at the back of the head. So knowing just a few tidbits from just one tribe using as an example, it really shows that there are a lot of different ways that feathers can be important. And because there were arrests made in 1974, there actually was so much public backlash historically that there was a new law that was enacted in 1978 called the American Indian Religious Freedom Act. And that's when that became law. And this is where this all kind of comes into play with the feather repositories. That law said that henceforth it shall be the policy of the United States to protect and preserve for American Indians their inherent right of freedom to believe, express, and exercise the traditional religions of the American Indian, Eskimo, Aleut, and Native Hawaiians, including, but not limited to, access to sites, use, and position of sacred objects, and the freedom to worship through ceremonials and traditional rites. So going on with that, it, it was obviously following that period of time where people are arrested and prosecuted for having feathers or selling feathers or bartering feathers. It is now something that we are at least able to say by law, they should be able to practice in the way that they need to practice using those sacred objects, which can include bird feathers. So that's why the repository is so important. People can then request to get feathers, how many feathers, and we as rehabilitators then send those feathers into those feather banks so that they can be redistributed. So if you didn't know that that was a thing, hopefully that's something you get to learn about today. And otherwise, I can only scratch the surface of this topic here in one radio segment. But really, I would highly encourage folks to dig a little deeper, learn about different tribes in your area, learn about the Wisconsin Native American tribes, the different nations, why feathers might be important, what birds are important, whether it's eagles or crows or turkeys or anything. There are just some really great stories, really great history there that I think is not really known to everyone. And I think think that that is something that if you're interested in, you can learn a lot about. So I know I learned a lot about it as we're collecting feathers as a center. And I think that the more rehabilitators that can help participate in getting those feathers to repositories really helps so that the collection grows and that they're more available for those uses. So that's a little bit today, you know, here we're talking about, you know, obviously a little different use of feathers in the rehabilitation perspective, but obviously an important one for Native American culture and traditions and glad that we have a repository available and new laws in place that allow for that to be a legal process and that we can help to preserve that type of tradition here in the U.S.
So thanks for listening here on WORT. Today's segment has been about feathers, bird feathers, specifically eagle feathers and others, and repositories around the U.S. to be able to collect them for Native American use. If you have any questions about feathers or birds or animals or or anything sick or injured, please give us a call at 608-287-3235. Otherwise, this has been Wildlife Weekly. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter was Ella Saff. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, Gavin S. Scott, and Hewan Lim. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Bay Parks produces newscast. And Sholly Pittman is a news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast and subscribe at your preferred podcast directory. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish language news with Enwish Joe Patio. Good night.